Beloved, life is full of enigmas, conundrums, quandaries, riddles, questions. Where can a man or a woman go to get the answer to life's riddles? As believers in Jesus Christ, we know the answer to that. We must go to the Word of God to unscramble the riddles of life. And the riddles are myriad. There are many of them. One of them is the question of authority. I remember there used to be a bumper sticker that was fashionable with certain people at one end of the political spectrum, uh, question authority. Uh, Things have kind of changed. Those that would uh, question authority 30 years ago are now in authority over almost all things, but that's a side topic. But one of the riddles, one of the questions in life is the response to authority. And when it comes to our obedience, when it comes to our submission to the authority structures that God gives us, we don't need an instruction manual on how to disobey. We are born with a built-in tendency. It comes very easy to disobey the authority structure that God gives us because there is sinful rebellion in all of our hearts. There's Not a law, we haven't found a law that we couldn't break, a morality that we couldn't disdain, a commandment that we couldn't violate. We take on this side of salvation, on the other side of salvation, I should say, we take the good things, even the good things that God gives, and we consume them at the wrong time or in the wrong quantity or with the wrong people. If you were here as we've been going through Ephesians, you may remember Back in Ephesians chapter 2, we talked about the rock band that every child is born into, namely the sons of disobedience. In Ephesians 2, 2, Paul writes, The prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is the issue, that is the challenge, is man's rebellion against the authority of God. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Our passage this morning is the latter portion of verse 5 through uh, verse 9. And we find ourselves at the end of this magnificent discourse that the Apostle Paul gave beginning back in chapter 5, verse 21, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul addresses six distinct groups of people in three pairs of two. He addresses wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And, beloved, follow along as I read the passage of Scripture that God has for us here this morning, beginning in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we do here at the 
beginning of this passage, we see that Paul addresses slaves. And then in verse 9, he picks up masters. Last week, we covered the first half of the first verse of slaves. And we know that when we look at the history here of the history of slavery, and we covered this last week, that essentially when this is speaking to us in 21st century America, what he is really describing here by way of principle and by way of application is your ministry in the workplace. Now, to be sure, there is some overlap between the historical context of slaves and masters when Paul was writing this and employees and employers here, but it's not one and the same thing. But what we want to look at here as we go forward is what does the word of God say to slaves and masters in the original context, and what does it say to you and me as an employee and or as an employer? And basically, we kind of have a two-part outline here. We see God giving instruction and command and wisdom so that you and I will know how to be bossed. And then, secondly, he will give instruction, wisdom, guidance on how to be the boss, the slave and the master, the employee and the employer. And beloved, all of us fall at one point in our life or another into both of these categories. Most of us continue to fall in both of these categories. Now, some of us may not, in our workplace ministry, some of us may not have anyone that is underneath us in any way, shape, or form, be it hard line or dotted line. Uh, Some of us, maybe only independent business owners, don't have anyone above us. But the wisdom of God here definitely talks to us at one point in our life. And again, for most of us, always at both parts of our life. Martin Luther said in this context, he said, We are created and born, according to which we are all alike, man or woman or child, young or old. But once we were born, God adorns and dresses you up as another person. He makes one a child and another a father, one a master and another a servant, one a prince and another a citizen. And beloved, what Paul is dealing with in this section 521 to 6-9 are the relationships. Some people have called this the household codes, certainly wives and husbands, children and parents. And another context of the slave-master relationship was the household slavery and master that most of the Roman households and would have been the majority position of most of the Ephesian households to which Paul is writing. But what we see here is we know the world tries to bring peace where there is no peace except for the peace that the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, brings. And beloved, we understand that the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, the one reconciled new humanity of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female together in one body, the gospel does what the world tries to do, but what the world never does and cannot do. And beloved, when we take God's wisdom, when we apply what he says here through Paul to the Ephesians to our lives, the gospel transforms our work. Our work is transformed and our witness is enhanced. You've probably heard the phrase, we're in the world but not of the world. Kind of a parallel truth is we are to not be friends with the world, but because God has us in the world, we should be friends with the worldly. 
God wants you and I to establish God-pleasing relationships, even with those in the world, as part of our ministry of outreach and bringing glory and honor to God. And beloved, wherever God has you, seek the shalom, the well-being in your neighborhood, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace, in your ministry, at your job. Beloved, our response to human authority, going back to the first riddle, the first question, the first conundrum that we talked about was authority and submission to it. Our response to human authority flows from and is subsumed by our response to God's authority. That is the issue that is at question here. So let's take a look at the first section that we have here, verse 5 through 8, namely the doulos in the workplace, the slave in the workplace, the employee in the workplace, where God tells us how we are to be bossed in our ministry in the workplace. He begins, slaves, doulos. Now, we understand that all of us are, when we're saved, we are slaves of Christ. And we get that and we understand that. But we also are reminded that Christ himself, our Lord in Philippians 2, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or to held on to, but he took on the form of what? He took on the form of a doulos, of a slave, of a bondservant. So the pattern has been set by Christ. He is our example. He is a standard for us all, set by the Lord of lords and the Lord over all, who in the greatest infinite display of godly humility took on the form of a slave. But again, the point of application for us, the center of gravity, is our ministry in the workplace. Now, What we see in verses 5 through 8 are four motivations for you to minister in the workplace under the umbrella of the singular command from God there at the beginning, slaves, obey your masters. Beloved, you are to work with reverence, with wholeheartedness, with eagerness, and with confidence, with confidence in the Lord. Understanding that work was ordained by God even before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Work is a blessing to be embraced. It's a gift from God to you. It's your ministry. It is a ministry to your colleagues, to your boss, to your customers, and ultimately it is your ministry to God, and it is your mission field. Now, last week we looked at that first motivation. You are to work with reverence. We are to work with obedience to your earthly master, which flows from your reverence for your heavenly father. Understanding that as believers that we can't say, well, this is my secular life over here. This compartment is over here outside the church is my secular life. And then over here, it's my sacred life. No, we understand that as adopted children of God, everything we do before the Lord is sacred. Whether then we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. So we are to work with reverence. The second motivation that we pick up at the end of chapter 5 is we are also to minister in the workplace with wholeheartedness. 
And what Paul is really saying here is something that is a central, essential thread of all biblical Christianity. It comes from the inside out. It's more about the internal rather than the external. The the good external is there and will be demonstrated, but the good external flows from the right and the sound and the good internal. Paul is describing obedience from the heart. He's saying that we should work with integrity and work without hypocrisy. That's why he says, slaves, obey your masters in fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Now, the word sincerity here is quite fascinating. Both the English word sincerity and the original Greek word that Paul used here, there's profit for both of us in that. The original Greek word translated here as sincerity literally means in the singleness of your heart, being single-eyed, single-hearted, single-minded. Uh, Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records in Matthew 6, 22, he uses the same word. Christ said, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, if your eye is single-minded, your whole body will be full of light. So we see the word translated as sincerity here, at least in the New American Standard in Ephesians 6 verse 5. And the New American Standard in Matthew 6 translates that word as clear. The English Standard Version translates it as healthy. But Again, what Paul is describing here is that what we do in the workplace needs to come from our heart, from the inside, from our very bowels. Now, the English word sincerity also has a fascinating etymology. You see, in the ancient world, the largest industry was a pottery industry. And there was cheap and very common pottery, and there was finer and more expensive pottery. The cheaper pottery was thick and solid and didn't require much skill to make. Uh, If you go to archaeological sites, it'll be filled with examples of that kind of cheap pottery. But the finest pottery, the more expensive pottery, was thin. It had a clear color and it brought a very high price. And it was also very fragile. It would very often even crack when the potter was firing it in the oven. And what would happen is, if it was an honest potter, an oddest dealer of pottery. If it was cracked pottery, he would throw it away. But there were many dishonest pottery salesmen that would would, uh, take this wax, and they would take the cracked pottery out of the kiln, out of the oven. They would try to fill in the cracks with the wax and try to smooth it over so that it would be undetectable to an unsuspecting buyer. And it couldn't be seen in the dimly lit shops at the time. But If you were to take, if the prospective buyer were to take the piece of pottery out and expose it to the sunlight, the cracks would be easily seen. So what would happen is the honest pottery dealers, they they would be happy for their customers to take the pottery out and look at it, but so that the buyers would know what they're getting, they would mark their fine products with the caption, Sine Sera, without wax. And beloved, what Paul is saying here is in the same way we can't cover our sins with the wax of deception. We understand that our lies on this side of glory aren't perfect. We'll always fall short on this side of glory of God's God's, uh, perfection. But 
We can't compound the problem by trying to cover up that sin. We must be sincere without the wax of deception in all things that we do as Christians, but here to this point in our ministry in the workplace. Understanding that when the spotlight of the word of God is shined upon our lives, when it's brought to bear on our life, the product should be authentic and internally clean. So Paul says, do this with sincerity of heart. He continues, not by way of eye service, there at the beginning of verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. It's interesting, the Greek word he translates as, or translated as eye service is ophthalmodulia, ophthalmology and doulos. He's basically saying, not by way of eye slavery. Paul actually coined this word. The first appearance in record in written Greek is Paul using that word here and then also in his parallel letter to the church in Colossae. And it's interesting, the New American Standard translates it as eye service here. Again, literally, it's eye slavery. In Colossians 3.22, it says, not with external service external service. So the whole point of what Paul is bringing here again is it needs to be from the inside out and we can't do this. We can't, okay, the boss is looking at me, the boss is in the room, so I'm going to behave in one certain way. But then when he or she goes away, now I'm going to do something different. That is what Paul is warning against here. He's describing a pencil pusher, a clock watcher, an eye pleaser. And it helps to keep us mindful that in everything as Christians, in our ministry, in the workplace, it is the spirit of the work, not merely the output as other people see it, that what matters. And it is also a reminder to us that we are not at all primarily concerned with the eye of man, but the eye of God. The sight of the Lord searches to and fro to see whose heart is fully given over to his. And we must always be mindful that we are always under either the approving eye of Jesus Christ or the disapproving eye of Jesus Christ. Paul continues still in verse 6. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Literally doing the will of God from the soul. And as slaves of Christ, the slaves who are slaves of earthly masters are told here, ultimately, you are slaves of Christ. The masters will get the same charge as well. But we see here that what the apostle Paul does is he qualifies the command, that first central command, obey your masters with doing the will of God. And we understand that the command, the charge to wives to submit to their husbands or children obey your parents or slaves obey your masters. It's not a completely blanket, openless, without limitation command to obey. If your employer commands you to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands, you must respectfully disobey, even as you would understand that from your conscience. And we have Multiple examples in Scripture. You can think of one great one, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 and 2. You remember the Hebrew midwives were commanded to murder the babies in the land. And what did the Hebrew midwives do with Moses? They hid him in the bulrushes. And they did that as a form of godly, respectful disobedience. Because, beloved, always our allegiance first 
and always is to God. We must obey God rather to man. That's why we would say again that our submission to the authority of man flows from and is subsumed by our submission to the authority of God. So reverence, wholeheartedness. The third motivation the apostle Paul gives here in verse 7 is you are to minister in your workplace with eagerness. So the slave of Christ, the employee of the Lord, works willingly, readily, voluntarily, freely, enthusiastically, vigorously. Paul says, verse 7, with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Render service, deluo. Literally saying with good will, if we had a verb form of slave, with good will, slave as to the Lord and not to men. So we see him doing here, we see Paul doing here what we saw him do with the wives, the husbands, the children, and the parents, qualifying everything as to the Lord, in the Lord. Wives as to the Lord. Husbands just as Christ. Children in the Lord. Parents of the Lord. Slaves as to Christ or here as to the Lord. Now, We understand that there will be times when it's difficult. We will have unjust employers, unjust bosses, companies not behaving the way that they should. And I'm not talking about the situation where my boss or my company is commanding me to do what God forbids or forbidding me to do what God commands, but even just the kind of obedience that I do need to give them can be difficult. We know that the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter, when he was giving his exhortation to the servants, he says, don't just obey your masters that are just masters, but even the unjust ones. Or turn with me, if you would, for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 3. And great words of encouragement to all Christians in any circumstance, but will be helpful for us even here when we're considering our ministry in the workplace. So 1 Peter 3, in verses 10 through 12, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34, but I want to pick it up in verse 12. So 1 Peter 3, in verse 12, Peter says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what good? And now, look at verse 14. Hang your hat on verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Verse 15, rather, but instead, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you and account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and with fear, with reverence. So, beloved, the application of that great encouragement and charge from God that we see there in 1 Peter 3, verse 14 is, it helps us to get rid of any kind of poor me mentality. We remove ourselves from the victim zone. And when we are wrong through no fault of our own, we trust God and look to him for strength and help. Whether it's being wrong because we're taking a stand for the truth because we're obeying God rather than man, or even if we're just being wrong by virtue of just doing what we would normally do, we look and trust God for strength and help. Also, beloved, When we apply these truths, when we 
apply these challenges, these commands, these charges from God, these motivations, your occupation becomes your vocation when you realize you're a slave to Christ. When the lordship of Christ is brought to bear on our work ethic, dishonesty, laziness, and bad will are replaced with integrity, hard work, and goodwill. Not that I expect anyone here has any of those first three characteristics, but all of us are work in process on this side of glory, seeking to excel yet more in all that we do, including what we do in our workplace. So reverence, wholeheartedness, eagerness, the fourth and final motivation that Paul gives to us for our ministry in the workplace is confidence. Confidence in self? No, confidence in the Lord and the future outcome. And he tells us that what is done for him will be rewarded by him. That's why Paul says, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. It's a challenge for us to be mindful of the fact that while we do work, while we do understand that God honors those who honor him, and very often that kind of honor is demonstrable and we'll see it work itself out even on this side of eternity. But at times it won't, and we understand that that will work itself out in eternity. And the Puritan Richard Baxter had some choice words about the dynamic and the plague and the difficulty that we as Christians face when we're living our lives here on earth on this side of eternity to be drawn away and lured in by a focus and overfocus on the things of the world. This is what Richard Baxter said. He said, it's a most lamentable thing to see how many people spend their time and their energy for trifles while God is cast aside. He who is all seems to them as nothing, and that which is nothing seems to them as all. And it's lamentable indeed, knowing that God has set mankind in such a race where heaven or hell is their certain end, that they should sit down and loiter or run after the childish toys of the world, forgetting the prize that we should run after. Beloved, even the good things that we enjoy here on earth, it's all dissolving while we enjoy it and while we use it. It's all going to burn up eventually. And beloved, I understand that you may be exploited now, but what God says, the promise God gives you, is you will be rewarded then. There will be a payday someday. That's why the Apostle Peter, earlier in his letter, back in chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 Peter, Peter says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And it's the same word that in Ephesians 6, 8, he says, we'll receive back from the Lord. Peter uses that saying, obtaining or receiving back as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Is there a greater prize? Is there a greater reward? Is there a greater joy? And beloved, by way of practical application, there is no ideal place to serve God except where he put you. Wherever God has you, Jim Elliott said, be all there. That doesn't mean you need to remain there. That doesn't mean you can't seek out and find a better job, a better environment. But as long as you are there, that is God's ideal place for you, and that is your ministry in the workplace. And work for the Lord as unto the Lord. And then 
Paul finishes with his words to the slaves with the great qualifier, whether slave or free. Whether slave or free, whether slave or master. Again, whether man or woman, child or adult. Whether slave or free. Slaves receive the same baptism as the rich. Slaves eat at the Lord's Supper as do the powerful. Some historically in the early church who were slaves in society became leaders in the church. In the third century, a former slave named Callistus became the bishop of Rome. Or for a biblical example, turn for a moment to Genesis chapter 39. And you'll remember the story and the situation with Joseph. His brothers had sold him into slavery. And we know the outcome that Joseph was a godly man and God's favor fell upon him. And what's fascinating, in Genesis chapter 39, four times you will see the phrase, the Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Verse 3. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And then draw your eyes over to verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Verse 23. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Now, beloved, in some ways, in exactly the same way, God is with you. To be sure, there are some distinctions where it's a different environment, different circumstance. But as a child of God, as Joseph was a child of God, if you're a Christian, the Lord is with you in your workplace, in your job. John Wesley's final words on his deathbed repeated twice said this, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. That's Paul's closing words to the slaves, to the employees, to those that are bossed. So now we turn our attention to verse 9. We move from the slaves to the masters, from the employees to the employer, from the bossed to the boss. He says, and masters, masters, kurios, it's the word literally and lords, uh, lords, earthly lords, that's a lowercase l. So there's the doulos in the workplace, there's the kurios in the, lur- in the uh, workplace. And what Paul does here in verse 9 is for those of you that have people under authority, again, whether it's a solid line or a dotted line, this is your responsibility to your employees. And he provides three guards for you to wield your God-vested authority well. So Christian boss, you are to minister to your employees with equity, integrity, and equality. Now, before we unpack these three guards, let me say a word on the massive difference between equity and equality. Equity means fairness, impartiality, being fair and just. Equality is the quality of being equal, of being equal in quantity, degree, value, rank, or ability, a uniformity. We could put it this way. Equity is equal opportunity Equality is equal outcome. So there is a world of difference between these two. Both of these are present here in the text, which we will unfold. But when this is 
when there's a misunderstanding, when there's a lack of understanding of the huge difference, when at the human level there's an implementation and a confusion of equality with equity, it could be disastrous. And we're seeing that as we speak, but that's not the point of the text here this morning, so we will move on. Beloved, the first guard for you, for you Christian bosses, for you boss man, boss woman, to wield your authority well is minister to your employees with equity. And what we see is through this entire section of these six groups of wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters, is God calls all believers to mutual accountability, respect, and love. In fact, remember, Paul launched in this whole section back in chapter 5, verse 21, when he made the blanket statement to all Christians, he said, submit to one another. So there's this heart submission, this heart attitude of love, respect, and accountability to one another behind this. But back here in verse 9, chapter 6, when he turns his attention to the masters, he says, do the same things to them. Masters do the same things to them, the slaves. Now, as good students of the word, we'll say, well, what is he talking about here? Is he saying, masters, obey your slaves the way your slaves obey you? Uh, well, one, that's completely nonsensical, so we, we could cast that aside. But he says, do the same things, plural, to them. So what Paul is talking about here is not the external act of obedience, but the internal heart of submission. It's not the fact of obedience. It's the manner of obedience that he is addressing here to the masters, to the employers. And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say at this point. This is what the doctor says. He says, once more, we are impressed by the perfect balance of Scripture, by this complete fairness in that respect, of course, Scripture is unique. And there's nothing in the world's literature which is in any way comparable to it. And in the Bible, everywhere from beginning to end, the balance is maintained perfectly. And we've seen it already in the case of wives and husbands and also in the case of children and parents. And it can never be said Scripture is unfair. Its balance, its fairness, its equity is one of its most striking and glorious features, end quote. So, beloved, what Paul is talking about here, what God is charging you and I to do here, if we, again, have somebody underneath us in terms of authority, is to treat them reverently, wholeheartedly, eagerly, and confidently before the Lord. We do this before the Lord, and we engage in our ministry as a boss, as one with authority in the workplace, as unto the Lord. So the first guard so that we would do this well is equity. The second guard for you to wield your authority well is minister to your employees with integrity. Now, we should understand biblical parenting 101. Parents, don't threaten your children. Uh, we know that Paul told the fathers earlier in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children unto anger. And what he says here is, masters, don't threaten your slaves. Bosses, don't threaten your employees. You see, in the original context, even among the masters that perhaps got saved, or even if they were unsaved, but they were you know, good masters wanting to treat their slaves well, there was a built-in framework where they would just threaten the slaves. That was how they would give greater galvanization to the 
slaves to do what they're supposed to do, but with threatening words and threats. And Paul says you need to stop doing that. That is, don't misuse your authority that has been vested to you by God. So this kind of threatening authority here is an overreaching, overbearing, tyrannical use of authority. And by way of a positive illustration, R.C. Sproul wrote a fantastic book. The title of the book is Stronger Than Steel, The Wayne Alderson Story. Wayne Alderson was in Pennsylvania, and he was born into a coal miner's family, fourth generation of coal miners. His father was a coal miner. And even in Sproul's book, Sproul accounted that, or recounted how Alderson would come home and he would hear his father sigh and say, in speaking of his management, if only they'd value me as much as they value a mule. And the idea was it was easier to replace a human miner than to replace a well-trained mule. But Wayne Alderson got into the industry and he rose up and eventually became an executive vice president of operations in a company called the Pitrin Corporation. It was a steel foundry near Pittsburgh. And the firm at one point after Alderson was in that role was struggling mightily after an 84-day strike. This 84-day strike between the workers and the management had left an aftermath of bitterness and hostility between the workers and the management. And Alderson conceived a plan that he would want to put in place based on Christian principles, the exact kind of teaching that God gives us here in Ephesians 6, verse 9. He called this initiative Operation Turnaround. And what he would do in launching this Operation Turnaround, Alderson walked daily through the foundry. He would greet the men by name and ask them about their work and their homes and their family. He visited them when they were sick. After doing this for some time, some of the workers asked Alderson if he would start a Bible study, so he started a Bible study. As time went on, the Bible study actually turned into a chapel service that was in a storage room. It was held in a storage room underneath a furnace. And beloved, as a result of God's good work in this operation turnaround time, the labor grievances virtually disappeared. Productivity and profits skyrocketed, and people called it the miracle uh, Petron. So, beloved, that's just one example of how we were able to see God honored someone, not just one person, but a number of people by the implementation, the application of the principles and the teaching that he gives us here. Bottom line is the grace of the gospel transforms threats into encouragement. Now, Having said that, we do realize whether we're a parent with a child or an employer with employees, not all children, not all employees always respond rightly to encouragement. There are people, they're like a, like a beanbag. You can threaten them, and, and not literally, but you can you know, punch them with threats, with warnings, with encouragement. They're just like a beanbag. They just soak it in and nothing changes. We understand what Paul's saying here is don't act like a yelling mother in Walmart. What happens to her? What, what happens to the yelling mother in Walmart when her undisciplined child calls her bluff? You see, the point here is there's a huge difference between a sound warning and a threat. Warning is appropriate. Um, continuing the illustration, you tell the child before you even leave the house, we're going to the store and I want you to do your best to try to obey. And, and, and if we get to the point where something needs to be dealt with, I'll be willing to leave my shopping cart right there and I'll drive you out into the desert where no one will hear you scream. <laughs> and we'll deal with it and we'll come back. Beloved, the, the point here is 
sound warnings are appropriate. And sound biblical warnings are calm, collected, controlled, and contained. It establishes a recognizable, reasonable, and fair standard for children or for employees. So, equity, uh, integrity. The third guard God gives here for us to minister to our employees well is equality. Equality, impartiality, mutual accountability. Uh, Nate Pickowich, he's a pastor in New Hampshire, said this. There are no second-class Christians. Every believer has been foreknown and chosen by God. Every believer is paid for by Christ, indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Every name written in the Lamb's book of life is precious to God, therefore must be precious to us. And what Paul does here is he draws the attention earlier as we saw the slave in Christ. Now he draws the attention of the master in Christ to Christ. And that's exactly what he did with the other two pairs as well. And what he does is he describes who the Lord is, where the Lord is, and what is he like. First, who the Lord is. For both slaves and masters, he says, knowing that both their master, knowing that both the master of the slaves and your master. So it's one Lord, one master of both slave and the earthly master. And it's interesting, Paul says, knowing that both are master and slave. He said the same words to the slaves, or at least same word knowing, back in verse 8, knowing whatever good thing each one does. What Paul was doing there in verse 8 to the slaves and to the masters here is he's saying, look, this is something that we could almost take for granted. It's something that goes without saying, which as the wonderful chairman of our elder board says, if it goes without saying, we better say it. That's exactly what Paul does here. This is the recognition that both slave and master in Christ have a common Lord. And beloved, this truth, this doctrine, this reality completely undermines slavery. And in the same way, back in the application to the boss, in the same way the lordship of Christ that we see work itself out here in the letter of Ephesians, the lordship of Christ expresses care more than control and responsibility more than rule. So also your ministry as the boss, as an employer, has more to do with care rather than control and responsibility rather than rule because that's who he is. Secondly, where he is. The slave and the master have the same Lord who is in heaven. He is in heaven. In Colossians 4.1, in Paul's parallel verse, in his letter to the church in Colossae, he says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing you too have a master in heaven. And what he is saying to the Colossian believers, to the Ephesian believers, to the Gilbertonian, or Gilbert, Tim, you told me, what's it, what's a, a yeah, Gilbert, the Gilbertonian believers, boss man, boss woman, lead through Christ, lead like Christ, and lead for Christ. Your Lord has given you authority so that you can bless others and so that you can serve his interests, not your interests. You are to be Lord over your slaves. You are to be boss over your employees. The second one applies to us here. As Christ is over his people. He's the good shepherd. He laid down his life for his people. He leads his sheep into quiet 
and still waters, or beside quiet and still waters. And he restores their souls. That's the standard. That's the pattern for you. And I love what the pastor and the commentator John Stott said about this dynamic and even what it meant historically in situations where the gospel took hold around the institution of slavery. Stott said, a message which unites master and slave as brothers ipso facto issued its radical challenge to an institution which separated them as proprietor and property. Thereafter, it was only a matter of time. Slavery would be abolished from within. Beloved, the teaching of Scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testament causes ungodly, wicked slavery to rot from within. So Paul says who the Lord is, where he is, lastly, what he's like, and he finishes, and there is no partiality with him. In Colossians 3.11, Paul wrote, It's a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, between uncircumcised and circumcised, between barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And we have the example in Scripture. There's an entire book that was written from the Apostle Paul to a slave owner named Philemon. Because Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus basically stole from his master by running away before his service was complete. And Onesimus went and went off to Rome, and when he was in Rome, he came under the gospel ministry of Paul, and God worked in the heart of Onesimus. Onesimus was saved, and Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon. But what he says to Philemon is, and it's interesting, when Paul sent Onesimus back, he didn't say, free him, he's no longer your slave. He basically sent him back to remain a slave, but far more importantly, as a brother in Christ. In verse 15 of Philemon, Paul says to Philemon, perhaps he, Onesimus, was for this reason parted from you for a while so that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And by the way, it was Onesimus who was accompanying a man named Tychicus who basically carried the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, Ephesus, in this personal letter to Philemon. So the very book of the Bible, the letter that we're studying, was carried in the hands of this slave Onesimus who became a free man in Christ. Beloved Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. So wrapping up this charge to the masters, it's temporal equity and eternal equality. It works out in God ultimately. And here on this side of heaven, the will of God is done on earth in the church. We are to understand the eternal equality of those that God has gifted us, well, God has given us the burden and responsibility and blessing to minister to as ones with authority over them. And imagine what your work will be like in heaven. Imagine what your ministry will be like in heaven. Imagine what your worship will be like in heaven. And then pause for a second and realize that those are all three the exact same question. 
your work, your ministry, your worship in heaven will be one and the same thing. And think now of the Lord's Prayer. Father, may your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Point being, your work, your ministry, your worship are all one and the same thing in Christ. And it doesn't matter in God's sight if you're a wife or a husband or a single. It doesn't matter if you're a child or a parent. It doesn't matter if you're at the bottom of the economic totem pole or you're the CEO of a major corporation. It doesn't matter if you're American, British, Russian, Chinese, or Cuban. It doesn't matter if you're from a great city or an obscure village. The only one thing that matters, have you seen that you're a sinner in the sight of a holy God? Are you trusting entirely in Jesus Christ alone by faith alone? Are you believing that he died for you and your sins? Do you know that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone? Do you know that God has given you new life? And this new life is the only thing that matters, not that old life. Beloved, friend, we are here today and gone tomorrow. The one thing that matters is you will one day see him face to face. That's the one riddle, the one question that is given a very clear answer by God. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. We thank you for, Lord Jesus, for revealing yourself in the pages of scripture. We thank you that you give us everything pertaining to life and godliness, to behave as wives and husbands, as children, as parents, as employees and as employers. God, bless all of us here today intensify and galvanize and challenge and build up and shape and sharpen our ministry in the workplace for your glory, for our joy, for our blessing to one another, and for our witness to a lost and dying world, whether, they, whether these are lost employees or whether these are lost bosses and directors and vice presidents and presidents. Lord, be glorified in our midst. And it's in your name that we pray and in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus, that we sing. Amen.